0: Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. For the past few weeks, we've been in a series entitled Collide, where human emotion meets truth in the Psalms. Thus far, we've looked at doubt, fear, tears, and this week, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid concludes Collide looking at guilt.
1: If you've been with us over the course of the last number of weeks, you know that we have been <clears throat> excuse me, in a series on our emotions, on how to handle our emotions. And the series uh, has been called Collide, where emotions meet truth in the Psalms. We've dealt with three emotions so far, doubt, fear, and tears. And today, I want to wrap up the series by talking about something that many of us deal with, and it's the issue of guilt. So if you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. I don't know. Maybe you've got an old school Bible like this one. This is a big one. It's got big uh, big letters so I can read. Uh, maybe you've got a digital copy. Whatever. Just turn in your Bible to Psalm 130. What we've seen throughout this series is that the Bible teaches us that our emotions are real. No point in denying them. You have them. They're real. But that they're not always True. So you don't have to indulge them. Instead, our emotions must be processed. What we do is that we bring our emotions to and we evaluate them in the light of the truth of God's word. And more specifically, the best place in the Bible to process your emotions is in the book of the Psalms. Because the Psalms are so full of every kind of emotion, even guilt. Which is what what Psalm 130 says is about. Now you'll notice right under the title where it says Psalm one thirty, the very first thing it says, just like last week's song Psalm, is that it says it's a song of ascent. And if you were with us last week you might might remember that I said that there are fifteen of these Psalms of Ascent. They all happen in one section of Scripture in the Psalms And they're found in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the reason that they were called songs of ascent was that Jerusalem, the religious uh, capital of Israel, was set on a high hill. And so when the people came to Jerusalem for one of their three religious festivals each year from their homes in the valley, they traditionally sang these songs, these psalms, as they walked up from their homes and ascended to the city. This psalm, a song of ascents. Now, I'm going to read this psalm all the way through, and then I want to talk about what it has to teach us about processing guilt. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore, You are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord for which, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Now, right out of the gate, the psalmist begins to describe in poetic images what anybody who has ever felt deep guilt would recognize. And it's that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach that you have failed in some way, that you have fallen short of your own expectations, someone else's expectations, God's expectations. And there's this loneliness that comes with that. Now, we don't know what he's done. It might have been something terrible, might have been something relatively minor to some of us. But whatever it is, he feels like he's drowning in guilt and shame. Now you might be asking, now wait, how do you know that this psalm is about guilt? Well, look at what he says in verse 2. He says he's crying out for God's mercy. And then he goes on and he speaks about sin and, and his need for forgiveness. This is about Guilt. There's a desperation in this man. He is awash in guilt, and he believes that God's mercy is the only thing that can save him. And I wonder, are you feeling that today? Is there something that you have done that you feel such guilt over, such shame about, that you feel like you're drowning in feelings of guilt? Maybe it's something big. Maybe... Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something you didn't do that you should have done. Maybe it's not big at all. There are some people that live with a chronic sense of guilt. You, you You feel guilty that you didn't remember someone's name this morning or that you didn't wave at the people in the parking lot this morning or you went shopping yesterday and you bought something for yourself and you feel guilty about that and you feel like you're drowning in these constant and unrelenting feelings of guilt, chronic guilt. Or maybe that's not where you are today. But you've been there in the past. you felt this before. And there's a very good chance you're going to feel it again someday in the future. Because all of us fail. None of us are perfect. Certainly not me. Not you. How are we to handle our feelings of guilt in a way that brings us out of the depths? Like that doesn't leave us in the depths. Do we accept all of our feelings of guilt? Do we reject them? Do we reject some of them? Do we reject all of them? How do we handle it in a way that doesn't leave us in the depths? In his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, there is a psychologist by the name of Viktor Frankl. Some of you may have heard of Viktor Frankl. He was, as I said, he was a psychologist, but he was also a survivor of the Holocaust, and he wrestled with after the holocaust he began to really wrestle with the meaning of life and of life's sufferings and i want to read to you just a little section from his book man's search for meaning by the way it's a fantastic book and i would it's an old book but it's a fantastic book and i would highly recommend that you read it he wrote this he says the tragic triad of life are pain guilt and death yet if handled properly that's the key They can spur a person toward abiding meaning and purpose in life. Through guilt, people have the potential to change for the better. Healthy guilt is a gatekeeper and boundary maker. It helps us discover where we shouldn't go in life, what we shouldn't do. And it helps us make amends when we do cause others pain and related hardships. Guilt helps us find our way back toward what's right And repair the torn portions of our lives. Seems to me that. Frankl could very well have been looking at this very psalm when he wrote this. Because it seems to prove the very point he's making. Here's a guy who at the very beginning of the psalm. Says that he's drowning in feelings of guilt. He's self-consumed. But then by the end of the psalm. He's full of hope. And he's praying that the whole nation of Israel would experience the healing of forgiveness in the way that he has. He's handled it in a healthy way. And so I want to look at this. I think this psalm teaches us uh, three things that we must do or think about to handle guilt in a healthy way that brings us out of the depths and doesn't just leave us there. And I want to start with this. You must distinguish between true guilt and false guilt you have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt and the reason i say this of course is that there are many people that are here today that are listening uh, through uh, our podcast who can't distinguish between true guilt and false guilt some of us feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty for so how do you tell the difference between true guilt and false guilt? Well, let me give you two components that are necessary for true guilt. And I don't want to give you a definition of true guilt. And I'll do the same with false guilt. Okay, so first, true guilt has to have an absolute moral standard that has been violated. So it has to have an absolute moral standard that has been violated. See, you have to be able to judge whether... What you did was right or what you did was wrong. Without an absolute standard, you could be guilty of everything or you could be guilty of nothing. And by absolute, what I mean is a standard that is true for all people in all times and in all places. Now, that's not something that our culture ve- likes very much, the idea that, that there is an absolute moral value for uh, all people in all times and all places. We don't want that. We, we want it to be true for those people in those places and in those times, but not us today. It's the major attack that you often hear about the Bible. But the Bible is truth. It is absolute truth because God is unchanging. It is absolute truth for all people in all times and in all places. You must have an absolute moral standard. And I want you to notice in verse 3 where the psalmist turns for that standard. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? He's saying that God is that absolute moral standard by which human beings are measured. He's the judge of what sin is and what it's not, and he's given us he's given us that in his in his word in the in the Bible. Now, second, for true guilt, for guilt to be true, it must also lead you to your redeemer. In other words, if God is the absolute moral standard, if He's the judge of sin, then only He can forgive sin. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but as this guy is. You know, he's saying that he's in the depths. Eight times in this passage, the psalmist uses the word Lord. Did you notice, notice that? Eight times. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, over and over. For instance, verse seven, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And so, in the midst of his guilt, he, he recognizes that what he's done is wrong. And then he turns to the only one who is able and willing to redeem him from his sins. He doesn't turn to his mama. He doesn't turn to his papa. He doesn't turn to his wife. He doesn't turn to his employer. He turns to his redeemer. Now, we know today what the psalmist didn't know at that time. That God would reveal himself in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, he would make provision for the forgiveness of the sins of humanity through his death on the cross. So we know that when he says Lord, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, even, he, even though he didn't know it at the time. So with those two things understood, here's a definition of true guilt. True guilt is the violation of an absolute moral standard for which Christ is the Redeemer. It's the violation of an absolute moral standard for which Christ is the Redeemer. In fact, if you you think about it, true guilt isn't really a feeling as much as it is an objective fact. I lied, I stole, I cheated. I am objectively guilty. And then what accompanies the fact of my guilt is the feeling of guilt. That's true guilt. But that feeling can be dealt with, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So that's true guilt. So then, what is false guilt? Well, I think that maybe the best way for me to explain what false guilt is is to give you an example. Do you know who experiences, at least in my opinion, who experiences false guilt more than any other set of people in the world? You know who that? You know who that is? It's moms. Moms. In fact, listen to this, an organization called Baby Center, I don't know who that is, but anyway, they did a survey on guilt, and listen to this, a whopping 94% of mothers said that they feel guilt about their role as a mom. Does that make sense? Do you you relate to that, moms? Yeah. And here are, I'm going to give you a list of the top seven things mothers feel guilt about, and see if any of these ring true for you. Or maybe they, maybe they remind you of what you felt guilt about when you were a mom. Here's number one: feeding your baby formula. Here's number two: using TV as a babysitter. You know, Amy and I had three uh, preschool boys all at the same time, right? I mean, they're they're grown now, but all of them at one point they were all all three preschool boys. Okay. A couple of years ago, we we're having dinner with a young couple who had just had their first child, and they talked with great sincerity about how they were never going to use the TV as a babysitter. Now, every time parents tell me that, I nod my head very sincerely. I won't encourage them as much as I can, but you know what goes through my head? See if any of you recognize this. Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, where, where? where, 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 where? is my hairbrush. Anybody recognize that song? Yeah. Okay. That's Larry boy from Veggie Tales. See, we said that too, that when we were new parents and we meant it, we were never going to use TV as a babysitter. But then we had three preschool boys at the same time and we praised God for television as a babysitter. I heard that song so much. I still remember it. Okay, here's the third thing that moms often feel guilty about is being environmentally unfriendly. Like when you put a trash bag out full of disposable dirty diapers while your neighbor is hanging cloth diapers from the clothesline. Here's number four, feeding your kids junk food. Number five, leaving your child with another caregiver. Number six, yelling at your kids. I don't think my kids knew that Amy had a normal voice until they were, you know, into their teen years. And seven, not being able to afford all the extras. You know what I mean by the extras? Like uh, we had people in, in my neighborhood in Dallas that uh, they, would, they hired their seven-year-old son a speed coach. That's what they mean by the extras. You can't do all of that stuff. A lot of moms feel guilty about that. Now, if you asked any one of the women that were surveyed if they really feel guilty about those things, they would say yes. I mean, their guilt feels real. Real no doubt but let's process their guilt this is what we're supposed to do we process it in light of scripture let's process their guilt to see if it's true guilt so first true guilt we said has to be a violation of an absolute moral standard is there an absolute moral standard in any of those seven things that were mentioned no of course not who set those standards God didn't set those standards. Some self-righteous busybody with too much time on her hands wrote it on Facebook and it made its way around the world preying on the fears of anxious new mothers in every corner of the world. These are arbitrary standards. These aren't absolute moral standards. And second, true guilt should point you to Christ, your Redeemer. Does this do that? Well, no, of course not. It's not an absolute moral standard. There is no redeemer for things that aren't absolute moral standards because you don't need a redeemer for that. These things leave women in the depths, feeling guilty, consumed with a feeling of guilt. Really, all this guilt does is it leaves them either feeling like a failure or determined to try harder to meet those standards. And you see, This is what false guilt wants to do. False guilt wants to keep you in the depths. It wants to keep you far away from Christ, feeling terrible, feeling like a failure, consumed with feelings of worthlessness. And I want you to listen to me about this. People who wrestle with false guilt, like chronically, people who wrestle with this are people who've been taught all of their lives, that their only usefulness, their only value in life, is determined by their ability to meet someone else's arbitrary expectations. Like when you were a child, maybe it was your mom, or maybe it was your dad's expectations. And like they had a lot of them, but you could never meet their expectations. You constantly fell short and they constantly reminded you what a disappointment you were. You just could never get their validation. And so seared in your mind is the false idea that the only way to get love and the only way to feel valuable is to meet expectations. Otherwise, you're gonna feel terrible. And so your spirituality Or if a person isn't spiritual, their whole life becomes all about rule keeping as a way of feeling valuable. And so you know what happens is that that if you struggle with this, you become an expectation magnet. You're constantly on the lookout for a rule to keep, a scruple to observe, a way to, to, to be an asset to a person or to a group. Because meeting expectations makes you feel valued. And oh, you hate the idea of freedom because if someone gives you freedom, it terrifies you because freedom just represents an opportunity to fail. And when you fail, you feel worthless. And so what do you do? Some people just, oh, they just decide that they are worthless and they stay for the rest of their lives in this, in the depths other people resolve to work harder, longer, do better, do more. But the problem is they're constantly destined to fail because you can't meet everybody's expectations. It is impossible. And in fact, what, what a lot of people who struggle with false guilt do is that they even take responsibility for other people's actions. Like if someone close to you fails to meet an expectation, you feel guilty. Because in your mind, it was your responsibility to make sure that they didn't fail. You know who I hear that with the most? Uh, It's with people who have been sexually abused as children. Women who have been abused by their husbands. It's like, I should have done something different. If I wouldn't have done, they wouldn't have done this to me. My question is, where is Christ in any of that? Where does it point you? Where does false guilt point you to Christ? It doesn't. False guilt is really all about you. You have to be your own savior, your own redeemer, and yet you're constantly destined to fail. And so here's a definition of false guilt. Remember, true guilt was a violation of an absolute moral standard which pointed you to Christ. But listen to this. Here's false guilt. False guilt is the failure to meet an arbitrary expectation resulting in feelings of worthlessness. Like it wasn't an absolute moral standard that you failed to meet. It was someone else's arbitrary expectation. And yet... Like even though it's false guilt, oh, they, the feelings feel so real. They, they feel like true guilt, don't they? Even though they're not true guilt. So first, in order to deal with guilt in a healthy way that brings you out of the, out of the depths, you have to determine whether your guilt is really true guilt or just false guilt. And I, let me just say one more thing about this. If you are truly guilty of violating an absolute moral standard, the Holy Spirit will convict you, and he will do so with gentleness and kindness and love and encouragement, and he will point you to the Redeemer. Hey, Jeff, you blew it. You blew it big. But uh, listen, there's hope. Christ died for this sin too. Don't wallow in your guilt, Jeff. Bring it to Christ. Christ. And then move on. And let's let's learn from this. That's that's how the Holy Spirit speaks. That's how you know true guilt. But can I tell you what false guilt sounds like? False guilt isn't the Holy Spirit at all. False guilt is someone from your past it's your mom. It's your dad who always who you always disappointed. It's your coach from when you were a kid who always hollered at you. False guilt sounds like this. You loser. You did it again. You always fail. You're a constant loser. You're worthless. You should feel ashamed of yourself. That's false guilt. It leaves you here. It doesn't point you to your redeemer. Got to learn to distinguish between the two of these. If it's true guilt, you're going to need to deal with it. We're going to talk about that. But if it's false guilt, you need to reject it. Say no to it. Put it away. Because if you don't learn to reject false guilt, you will spend the rest of your life running, working, striving to meet everyone's expectations, never able to say no, never able to make a mistake, and yet always, always feeling like a failure, drowning in feelings of worthlessness. So you've got to do this. You've got to learn to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt. Okay, second. Second. To handle guilt in a healthy way, you have to repent of true guilt. So like false guilt, you just reject. You're like, that's not me. That's not on me. True guilt, you have to repent. Now, if you notice in this passage, what jumpstarts the whole process of this man's forgiveness and healing and transformation is this thing called repentance. That's what he's doing in verse 2 when he asks God for mercy, for forgiveness. He, he recognizes, he acknowledges that he's offended the holiness of God in some way. He doesn't deny it. He owns it. He looks at it. He acknowledges. That's the source of his despair. And he cries out to his Redeemer for mercy and for forgiveness. Now, here's a principle that I want you to pay very close attention to. I hope you'll you'll remember it, maybe write it down, whatever you got to do. But it's really important that you get this. The healing of forgiveness comes through the sting of repentance. The healing of forgiveness, it always comes through the sting of repentance. And here's what I mean. You have to understand what it means to repent. When you repent... You're acknowledging that you're guilty before God, but it's more than that. Repentance also acknowledges that the reason you're guilty, the reason that you have sinned, is that you have a sinful, selfish heart. But it's even more than that. Repentance also acknowledges that you can't do anything about this sinful heart. Only God can do it. The only hope for you is the sheer mercy of God. And see, this is offensive to the human spirit. It hurts to hear that. It's it's humbling to hear that. And that's what I mean by the sting of repentance. You have to own that you were wrong and that the only hope for you is Christ. To get the healing, you have to endure the sting. Repentance is like uh, antiseptic. It stings when it goes on, but in the end, it's, it's healing. But you see... Here's the thing. The sting is why many people choose not to believe in Christ in the first place. Because to believe would mean that I would have to endure the sting of repentance. I would have to humble myself. And so, what happens with many people is that they choose denial as a life strategy. I choose not to believe that there is an absolute moral standard. I choose not to believe that Christ's death on the cross is the only way for me to find forgiveness. I choose never to take a close enough look at my life to see and admit and repent before a holy God. But I want to say this too, that this sting of repentance, it's also the reason that the lives of so many people who have believed in Christ are still such a mess. Like years, even decades, after believing in Christ. Like there are broken relationships all over your life there are these addictions that are developing at the edge of your life. You're constantly seeking something new to make you feel alive. Rather than going through the sting of ongoing repentance, you do this thing where you dodge and weave and you practice denial, you never accept blame, and you always blame everyone else for your problems. You never take the time to look inward, to see if maybe the blame is, is here. But there's a cost to that. I want you to look at what he says in verse 4. It says something that's actually, I think it's, it's counterintuitive. He says, But with you there is forgiveness and then look at what he says. He says, therefore, you are feared. Now, that didn't make sense to me at first. Why wouldn't he say, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore, you are loved, or therefore, you are praised? Why say feared? We have to understand what he's not saying is that if you have a relationship with Christ, that your relationship with him should be, on, uh, it should be based around fear. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the natural human response to God's forgiveness is fear. Why? Why fear? Well, in every one of us, there is this longing for someone to know us all the way to the bottom. That's what drives every romantic movie that's ever been made. But at the same time, to be known all the way to the bottom is terrifying. Terrifying. You see, going through the sting of repentance and accepting the forgiveness God offers, on the one hand, means that he loves us all the way to the bottom, and that's great. But it also means that he knows everything about us. Like every secret you have, every part of you that you keep hidden from the rest of the world, all of the things that you would rather deny and lie about than admit. Because to acknowledge it would be embarrassing, it would be humbling, and it would shake the very foundations of your life. So you can't fool him, you can't deny, you can't practice, you know, dodge and weave denial with him. To get close to him means dealing with the stuff in your life that's tearing you and your relationships and your soul apart because he loves you enough to make sure that you deal with those things. And in that sense, he terrifies you. And so you do this, you do this, stay away, come closer, dance with him. Much like two people do when they first meet and they begin to fall in love. You want more, but you can't bear more. But if you're willing to go through the sting of repentance, there is. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, there is hope in the Lord. Earlier, he says, I hope in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, look at what he says just after that. He says, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Unfailing love. What does that mean? That means complete acceptance, validation of your worth. You don't have to scurry around trying to meet everyone else's expectations. You don't have to stay in the depths and feel like a failure. When you bring it to Christ, It's done. There's full redemption. He will change you. He will forgive you. He will change you into the person that you've always wanted to be. You'll find a sense of meaning and value and purpose to your life that you never had before. Your relationships can be healed. They can take on new life. Your work takes on new meaning. You're not afraid of failure anymore. You're not afraid of criticism because you are loved by the subject and the object of life. He's saying there's hope. I don't have to stay there in the depths I don't have to feel like a failure like a disappointment all of my life all I have to do is bring it to the cross of Christ and it's dealt with and I move on because Christ paid for it listen to this I know that scares some of you to think about that because what you think is that well it seems like you're taking sin too lightly I want you to understand this the gospel doesn't take your sin lightly Christ had to die for your sins that's not taking sin lightly but it also doesn't require that you crucify yourself and wallow in your guilt indefinitely. There is healing for true guilt when you repent. And if you want to deal with the guilt in a way that leads to health, you can't live in, you know, bob and weave denial. You've got to go through the sting of repentance to experience the healing of forgiveness, And I want to tell you one way that I think would be a great way for some of you to apply this. I've told people this before. One of the best ways to apply this is to find three or four people this week that, that know you very, very well. And ask them that, that these are people that you trust. Ask them this question. What's it like being on the other side of me? And like I promise, you're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to promise, I, I won't punish you in any way if you, if you tell me the truth. Okay? I won't punish you. And you know what? A, one great way of knowing whether denial is your strategy is by listening to what they say. If they don't believe that you can handle it, if they think that you practice denial all the time, they won't tell you anything negative. It'll all be positive. Because they know you can't handle it. Because it puts you in a pit of despair that you never get out of. They won't tell you anything true. Everything will be, I mean, man, everything will be positive. But you aren't good all the time. Try that. If you want to deal with guilt a healthy way, if you want to get out of the depths, you've got to, first of all, distinguish between true guilt and false guilt, you have to reject false guilt, you have to repent of true guilt, and then finally, this, you have to accept that the journey out of the depths is a process you see if you've struggled with guilt all of your life if you're the kind of person that oh you know you confess whatever it is that you've done wrong and then you still feel guilty or if you're the kind of person who lives with chronic false guilt you just need to know it's not going to go away immediately it's a process and the psalmist says first you have to wait patiently look at verse six my soul waits for the lord Most of us have learned to live guilty or to live with false guilt from early on in our lives and we've practiced it for years and years and years. It doesn't change instantly. It's a process. You have to wait patiently. You've got to preach this to yourself that Christ died on the cross so I don't have to crucify myself. You've got to preach that to yourself. Wait patiently. It's a process. But then second he says wait expectantly. Actually, he says it twice just to make sure that you get it. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So what is he talking about? Well, when a watchman waited for the morning, they were usually like at the end of their shift, they were tired, they were ready to get off work. So they're watching for any glimpse of the sun. You know, really, what, what this is, is they're watching the clock, right? They're watching the clock. And one thing that is certain. That no matter how long it takes for the sun to begin to rise, it always rose. You will come out of the depths. If you do the things that we've talked about, you will experience healing. God is able to transform you. So wait for it patiently, but wait for it expectantly, knowing it's going to come. It's going to happen to you if you just keep doing these things. 30 says, wait in community. Verse 7, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem all of Israel. From all of their sins. What's happening here? Well remember where he started. He was, he was in the depths of guilt. Feeling like an abject failure. He was alone. He, was, he felt isolated. He felt worthless. But when he repents. And he begins to come out of that. He wants to tell other people. Who are in the depths. How to get out. He wants them to experience. What he's experienced. And there's a sense in which. He even heals himself. By counseling other people. Who are still in the depths. Get out of there. Here's how. Bring it to Christ. There's a way out of the depths that you find yourself in, perhaps this morning, or that you may find yourself in in the future. No matter how deep the depths of your guilt are, no matter how bad you feel, no matter how much of a failure you may feel like, no matter how ashamed you are, you need to know that there's a way out, and the way out goes right through the cross of Jesus Christ. Last thing, there was this line in the psalm, I just wanted to save this for last. It's like always, this is always the thing, it's always the gift, like at the end. Here it goes, verse three. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand, he asks. (laughs) Not him, not me, not you. It's a good thing that A relationship with God isn't based on my performance. Who could stand? Nobody. Oh, wait. There is one person who could stand. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who had no guilt was punished for your guilt so that you could live. His life was given for your life. He experienced the depths of guilt on the cross so that you could be brought out of the depths of guilt. He's the gift, and forgiveness is the gift that he gives. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for, for this truth. Thank you for what you did on the cross for us. We always end with that point because the cross is the basis for every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our Relationship with you, no matter how long it goes, is always based on what you did on the cross of Christ. On the cross, Lord Jesus, for those that are here this morning that may, oh man, maybe they're living in guilt, maybe they've never come to a place where they've believed in you, would you speak to them this morning in a way that only you can? And Lord, would you tell them that whatever the depths of guilt that they're in, whatever it is, no matter how deep it is, that you can bring them out, only you can bring them out. And then Lord, for those of us who have believed, but all, you know, we, we, we never look inside. We, we, we practice Bob and Weave denial. We're afraid. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you tell us that there's, would you remind us that there's nothing to fear? Because with you there is hope, there is unfailing love. That you love us all the way to the bottom of our soul. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in that and we find hope in that. Lord, would all of Evansville find that same hope that's in you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today. Amen.
0: Following what's arguably the most famous passage in Scripture... John 3 16 you find this phrase for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him that's why we can say that the cross changes everything even our guilt because Jesus condemnation frees us from our guilt and our indebtedness well thank you so much for choosing to tune into the City Church Evansville podcast We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning at 9.15 or 11 a.m. at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.